lots of things that happen in and through the ministry of this church. But more importantly, more importantly, it's about you and what you are doing through these activities. Thanks that you have promised that you use your word, that you use your people, that you use broken people to feed and to encourage and to build up and to equip people for service. And I pray this morning as we come to your word that you would challenge us again, that you would remind us of who you are, that you would remind us of your heart for people, that you would cause us to remember what you have done for us in our lives and that gratitude would overflow in the way that we live. And so I pray right now that you would use your word Thanks that you've promised it will not return void, but it will do the purpose for which you'd set it out. And so we ask that you'd use this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you guys would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. I uh, have the unique experience of filling in, you know, filling in with Bill, with, for Bill. And every time I preach, I wear a tie. And every time I have a tie, somebody usually comments and says, Oh, you're preaching today because I have my tie on. This is my preaching tie. So it's always kind of an interesting thing, but but uh, Bill is is traveling this week, and it's an opportunity to get to fill in for him. Acts chapter one, we're going to look at this morning, verses one through eleven. As you guys find that, I'll read in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt. I have dealt with, excuse me, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven." We see in the book of Acts the story of the early church. We have, and if you read from beginning to end, it it reads like an adventure, like a drama. It reads because there is something taking place. And and there is a storyline. There is a mission to be fulfilled. And yet there's lots of setbacks, or at least it seems that way. There are many things that happen that would seem unexpected. People are killed and they lose their lives. For their faith. Key characters in this story are placed in prison for long periods of time. There's miraculous releases from prison. It is a beautiful story as we read through it, and we understand as we read through it that it tells us about the early church. It tells us what God did 
in the early church and how he began to grow his church during that time. It's the main source that we have of understanding and knowing what took place in the early church. I need to say, I've got a little feedback here or something that's kind of ringing in my ears. So I don't know if that can be adjusted, but it sounds funny. I hear me twice and I don't like that. But um, <laughs> some of you get to hear me twice too. But anyway, um, and so what we see is a picture of what God was doing in the early church. Acts is written by the, the author is Luke, who also authored the Gospel of Luke. And the two pieces really are, are go together. In the, in the book of Luke, and the Gospel of Luke, he describes for us who Christ is in his ministry. And if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 1, we'll get really kind of the forward or the introduction to both of the books, Luke and Acts. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And uh, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Jesus, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, a most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. And we see Luke, basically, he's writing to Theophilus, not certain who that is, but we know we hear this message and we know that it's written to us. And the purpose of his writing is to encourage us in the things that we have been taught. To say these things are certain as he describes the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ during his years on earth. So he says it's, he's writing them so that they would have a certainty of the things that they've been told. And then jump back to Acts chapter 1. In the verse 2 verses we have this, a similar kind of address in the in the first book of Theophilus I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up and so basically in the book of Luke we have Luke describing Jesus's ministry while I was here on earth all he began to do and to say but here in the in the book of Acts we have all that Jesus continued to do all that he continued to accomplish in his ministry however the location of his ministry was different the location, as we see at the end of the passage we just read, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so the location of his ministry now is at the right hand of the throne of God. But the ministry is essentially the same that he is bringing. So the book of Acts really uncovers or shows for us Christ's ministry as it continues with his presence being in heaven, but his presence dwelling in and through us. Also, the book of Acts traces for us the growth of the early church. And Luke takes great pains to, to reveal this to us, to show what actually took place throughout the book of Acts. And he gives us a numerical account at different points. In the very next chapter, he says there's several thousand that's added to the church. And at different points, he says certain numbers of people were added to the, to the church that day. So he gives us a numerical account of the growth. It also, we see this geographical expansion of the church. Verse 8 that I'd read earlier Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so he says, and we see that exactly that happens. That the church grows geographically and begins to take in different areas. But although it, it, it traces for us the growth of the church ethnically, it describes for us and he says that it's not just for one group of people. But we see Sumerians taking this and getting the gospel and Ethiopians and then Romans 
the non-Jews can get the gospel. And it's for them as the gospel and the church spreads. And so the, the book traces for us these things, the growth of it. And finally, one of the, the themes or the threads throughout the book that's important for us to understand is, to, is that one of the themes is if you look in verse 3 with me, to them, this is Jesus, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering, but many proofs, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He teaches them in this time period, after his resurrection, he teaches them about the kingdom of God. And he explains to them what it is and how he has brought it in. But now look at the very end of the book. Acts chapter 28. We see the same thing taking place. Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. We see Paul under house arrest in Rome. And Luke tells us that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We see Christ at the very end of this book as Luke has traced for us the progression and the growth of the church Paul is doing the exact same thing that Jesus did in the beginning. He's teaching and talking about the rule and reign of God and what that looks like in people's lives through Christ. And so as we look at this passage, we see it's telling us, the whole book is explaining for us the growth of the church. And to understand the passage we're looking at, it's necessary to understand that. It's even more necessary, I think, to understand, or a part of this, is to understand what happens next in the story. And if you've read ahead, you know that Acts chapter 2 is a huge event in which the promised event that Jesus tells us in verse 5, that the Holy Spirit will come and dwell in his people, Acts chapter 2 takes place there. And in in chapter 2, we see the Spirit coming and living and dwelling in his people. But the section that we're looking at is really like a prelude to this new movement. If you know a musical prelude sets up a new movement, something different that's going to happen musically. And indeed, that's what Luke does. He says, I want to prepare you for what's going to happen in the next chapter. As Jesus is preparing them for the coming of the Spirit to dwell in them, the same is taking place for us. The stage, to use a different metaphor, the stage is being set in God's plan, in His act, in His play. And a new act is going to begin. And a character is going to walk on the stage in a way that he has not walked on the stage before. The character is the Holy Spirit. The third person in the Trinity will walk on and show up in the lives of God's people in a way that we have not seen him do that before. And so, as we look at these words, we need to realize this is what's coming. And the stage is being set for what's going to happen next. And we don't have time this morning to deal with that. But it's important for us to know, in this time period preceding the coming of the Holy Spirit is very unique. And the change that took place between that time and the day in which we live is huge. So much so as I was studying this and was thinking about what was it like when the Spirit came, what would it be like to have not the Spirit indwell believers, but then what would it be like if He did? And I asked Bill, I said, Bill, would you come in? Can we talk a little bit this last week? And I took about a half hour of his time just to say, Tell, what, what is this? What is happening? How do we explain this? And while it's much larger for us, the difference between the believers before Pentecost and after, there's some key things I think we can get our hands around that's important to look at. First, the the Holy Spirit was promised and the fulfillment took place in Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit came and dwelled in God's people. 
there was a new era that began. Something new started. The church age is another way to see it. That the, the, the era in which God dwells in and through his people. The age in which we live, the era that took place in Acts chapter 2, the change, one of the changes at least, is that the presence of God was no longer identified by a place or a temple or a location. The new way in which it would work is that God's presence was, would be identified by his people, living in us corporately, living in us individually, in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, that we see that that's what it looked like, what God would do. And the carrying out of the mission that Christ gives them here in this next, in the next section we're going to look at is going to be through us. It's going to be through the disciples, those who heard. And it will be through God's Spirit at working in and through them. And so the, the age or the shift there is, is large. And it's difficult to get our hands around, but it's important. It's a significant change. Even this last week with the inauguration of a new term of a presidency of, of President Bush, we get a picture of that. That word is used oftentimes in describing this new age. An inauguration where the Spirit would come and dwell in God's people. We see it again. There's a new term. Something different has changed the same way for the presidency. The same president, but a new office. Something else is happening. And it's difficult to understand, but John Piper uses an illustration that was helpful in understanding what was the difference like in terms of the Spirit's involvement in people's lives before and after. And he uses the analogy of a river. And he says that if you, think, if you picture a river flowing or whatever and people making use of that, gaining benefit from that, from the water or washing or from irrigation or whatever, that there's benefit gained from the river's presence in people's lives. Now picture that river being dammed up and picture a hydroelectric plant being placed in that dam so that there is electricity that's generated from the power that the river provides. And that electricity then is piped to hundreds or thousands or many different homes to provide the power that they need to live their lives. It's the exact same river, but the way that its power is utilized is different. It's a much broader impact in the latter stage. When you have this, the river dammed up, and that's similar, it gets at what happens is in this case, before the Spirit worked in people's lives. The Spirit empowered them. But in after Acts chapter 2, something unique happens in that the Spirit, the presence of God, comes and resides in His people and empowers them to live lives and to take the gospel to others. And so that's what we see happening in this case. And as we look and we want to focus in this morning upon verses 6 through 8, we need to understand that this is the setting in which this comes. The Spirit is about to be sent in Acts chapter 2. The church is about to explode onto the scene, so to speak, as God makes use of it, as He works in and through them. You can't help but wonder what the, the disciples would think at this point in time. Many things have happened that they did not expect. His crucifixion for one. His resurrection for another. And the last 40 days they have spent with Him and He is teaching them and informing them about these things. And we come to this verse, verse 6. We see this last interaction, this last, these last question and answer we have between Christ and his disciples. In verse 6. So, when they had come together, they asked him, his disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will re- and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the question here is not nearly as important as the answer. They ask him a question. Essentially, they say, okay, all these things have happened, and they want to know what's going to happen next. What's, Lord, what are you going to do next? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time we've kind of been waiting for? Is this what we've been anticipating, that this new kingdom would be established? You've been talking about it. Is this the time it's going to happen? And it's an appropriate question that they would want to know these things. They want to know the when. They want to know exactly what. They want to know, is it going to go to, to Israel? Now, it's interesting that Christ doesn't scold them for their question. He doesn't say, you're way off base. But he does answer it. And as in Christ's answers oftentimes to questions are, he doesn't answer it in the way that you might expect. To a simple yes or no question here, he gives them a, a, a different answer than maybe they expected. And we see in, the, in his answer, first and foremost, he deals with the when of this. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know these times. You know, the question or the, and the answer remind me a, a lot of perhaps a, a parent-child kind of interaction where the child wants to know something that they really have no business knowing. If something like this, your, your, uh, your child asks you, Daddy, how much do you make? How much money do you make? Or how much does our house cost? And you realize inherent in the question is just, is they don't need to know those answers. There's a curiosity that might drive the question, but it's not necessary for them to know it. Secondly, they can't even comprehend the answer. If you say you made, you know, 50000 or 100000 or whatever, they wouldn't, they couldn't even calculate or they wouldn't have any reference point for that. So they couldn't even comprehend the answer to the question that you were to give them. And then even you might ask yourself, what would they do with that information? They go tell their friends, my dad makes this much money, my house costs this much. They would pass on the information or use it in ways that certainly were not wise. And we see in this, in this interaction, the disciples had no need of really knowing the answer to the question. At the same time, they couldn't even understand it if it were given to them. And in the third case, who knows what they would have done with it. And so we see that Christ says, I can't tell you the answer to that. Only the Father knows that. And as one commentator made the statement, he said, they were not to have the knowledge which they sought, but something far better for themselves and others. He says, I'm not going to give you this information. This isn't useful, but I am going to give you something that will be useful for you and useful for others as well. And we see in verse 8, he says, I can't tell you this, but in verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He says, this I will give you. You might wonder about positions in my cabin, in this cabinet. If you read through the disciples and their interactions, you see that perhaps they were vying for some sort of cabinet position in this kingdom. He says, that's not the kind of power that I'm talking about. When the Spirit comes and lives in you, you will receive a kind of power, and you must ask the question, what is the power for? It's not political power. It's not physical power to build the break bars or bend bars or break chains, but it's a kind of power to witness. In verse 8, he says, you will be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. There will be such a change in your life and the way that you live that you will display all that I am. And all that you've seen, you'll be used to do that. You will be my witnesses when you're filled with this power from my spirit. 
Look at a couple of verses with me. First, uh, look in Acts chapter 4. Again, if you were to read through the rest of the book of Acts, you would see that what's put on display is this thing that Jesus is talking about. This kind of power at work in men and women's lives. Because the apostles lived it out in their words and their actions. We see that they were empowered. In verse 13 of chapter 4, is again, just a little picture of this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They were astonished when they saw these normal men behaving in such bold and courageous ways. They realized these aren't just normal men. They realized there's something else at work in their lives. And look at verse 33 of the same chapter four in Acts. Another little summary statement that that Luke gives us. He says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon their own. With great power, you see these men displaying the witness of God. They were talking about who God was. You see, something had taken place in their lives that could only be explained in one way. And it wasn't in natural terms. It must be explained only in the, president, the presence of God in their lives. That's the only way it could be explained. Because if you look at them before the resurrection, they're hiding out. And you look at them after Pentecost, they're standing up and boldly preaching and giving their lives for the gospel. So the power that Christ promised in the spirit will radically transform their lives. And then the where question. He says, you will receive power for the purpose of witnessing. And then he says, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This power will be evidenced in its growth. From the point you are right now in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, the area immediately surrounding you, the the area of ancient Israel, the area of people that are even not like you, the Samaritans, they will grow to that point and even to the ends of the earth. He says, you will be my witnesses there. And you've got to wonder about them. They're going, how is this going to happen? Here we are in Jerusalem and you're saying this is going to go to the ends of the earth? But it does. Because Christ said, as they're they're filled with the Spirit, that will happen. A comment on the ends of the earth, um, it's geographical, but it also pictures for us an ethnic change. The idea, even in the Old Testament, the ends of the earth would be those who were non-Jews. That the gospel would go to the Gentiles. That the gospel would come, guess what, to us. It's expansion geographically as well as ethnically. God's heart is for everyone, every group of people. And a final statement in this. When he says, you will be my witnesses, it's not a command. He's not saying, go be my witnesses. He does command other places to go make disciples. Nor is it necessarily even a prophecy. I predict that you will do this. It's just merely a statement of fact. He says, you will be my witnesses. When you are filled with my spirit, guess what's going to happen? And it can't help but not happen that you will be witnesses to me. Because this is the nature of it. This is what will happen. And we see, as we read through the, the book of Acts, that that's exactly what happens. And Luke accounted for us. And as we sit here in Lawrence, Kansas, with the gospel having been brought to us and having that gospel impacted our lives, we give witness to what Christ said would happen has actually happened and is in the process of happening. 
Because we are the ends of the earth, whether we think of it that way or not. We are the ends of the earth. So the, the question then we have to ask, as we look at this passage and we see the statement that Jesus makes, we see that the, really the promise that this will take place as we sit here today. So what? What do we do with this? Why is it that Luke tells us these things? Why is it significant that we read this account of Christ's last words? Well, there's a couple things that I think are important to, to draw out of it. And the first one has to do with the understanding with the book of Acts. And with the book of Acts, as it is a description for us of the early church. And if we're truly to understand the book of Acts, understanding the intention of the human author, the intention of the divine author, we can't understand it apart from verse 8, where he says, and when the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We can't understand. It's this verse that drives the entire book. It's this book that sets the scene or the table of contents, if you will, of where it's going. And it's this verse that drives the early church. It's this verse that they identified. And if you were to ask them, who are you? They would see themselves through that lens. They would see we are witnesses of Jesus Christ, his life, his death and his resurrection. That's who we are. And that's how we are. If we were to understand the early church, we must understand that they saw their lives and their mission through this lens, through being his witnesses and everything else was interpreted through that and understood through that. So if we want to understand how is it or why is it that you would lose your life, 11 of the 12 apostles being martyred for their faith, why would you do that? Or if we were to ask them in in, uh, different parts of Acts where they sold their goods and they helped those who had need, why did you do that? Or if you were to ask them, why would you risk everything for the gospel? The only answer could be is because they understood themselves to be witnesses to the to Jesus Christ, that they had seen him, his life and his death and his resurrection. And it was because they primarily viewed themselves through this lens. They were to be they were witnesses first and foremost. And God's glory and their presentation of his gospel through their life and their words was their mission. It's what they lived for. So if we understand why they lived and how they lived. We must understand how they saw themselves and why they lived that way. Also, as we look at the passage, we can see historically, we can understand the early church through that. At the same time, when Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. It tells us something even more significant. When we ask the question, what does this tell us about the heart of God? What does it tell us that he would give his primary mission to his disciples what does it tell us about him, about what he wants, or what, about what he is about? It's Christ's mission. He gives it to them. He empowers them. But it comes from the heart of God. If you think about a company, any company has a mission statement. And the mission statement helps to describe what it is they're about. What are we trying to do? Why do we exist as a company? What's the thing that we want to do with our, with our company in the same way a mission statement tells you what's at the heart of God. For example, a mission statement that was written, it was in 1994. The chairman of the board of, and chairman of the board and um, the CEO of Coca-Cola at the time wrote this to his stockholders. He said, all of us in the Coca-Cola family wake up each morning 
knowing that every single one of the world's 5.6 billion people will get thirsty that day and that we are the ones with the best opportunity to refresh them. That was the mission statement, the mission of Coca-Cola. As they looked around, they saw thirsty people and they said, it's our job to turn thirsty people into refreshed people, into satisfied people. That's what that, and everything else about their company would be dictated and formed around that statement. Thirsty people that need to be satisfied. As we look at this statement, and Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. It tells us something. And we get a glimpse into the heart of God. What is it that he is about? And we see that the center of the heart of God is that his glory would be seen in the going forth of his gospel through his people. And that the gospel would go through transformed lives to transform other lives. And to the degree that we have experienced the gospel in our lives, that we have tasted what he has done for us, the same will be true, that he will use us. And that is his heart. That is his plan. It's his program. It's his mission that he has given and entrusted. In this case, in the text, he entrusted to the disciples. He says, this is true. And it tells us who God is. It's his mission. It's driven by his love for his people. It's provided for by his power and his authority. And the church is his agent through which this is going to be worked out. And for all who identify with Christ, all who have trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sins, who have entrusted themselves to him for life and understand there's no other place that you can go to find living water, he says, you are the agents of that mission. You are the ones who will take the message on to others. This has been God's plan all along. This isn't a new thing that he just institutes here. Oh, by the way, uh, I've got a new plan for you guys. Uh, instead of this kingdom thing, I'm going to do the, you know, I want you to go be witnesses or something. It's not a new plan. This is something that he is doing and has been had in his mind all along. Look with me at Genesis chapter 12. There's a ton of verses and we're not going to look at them all. That, that tell us about God's saving intentions for the entire world. Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3, we see the call of Abram, soon to be Abraham. But, and he tells him, gives, we see the call as well as the reason for the call. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The purpose of the blessing is that everyone, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. God's intentions. Turn to Isaiah chapter 49. 49 verse 6. Again, you can trace this throughout. These are just a couple of, of verses. 49.6. God says in verse 6, He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He says, it's too small a thing. It's just about Israel. It says, 
I will make you a light to the nations. That the purpose and the point, his plan is that all nations would come to know him. That his gospel would be presented and proclaimed. We won't look at it, but you can jot it down if you're taking notes. Isaiah 66 verses 18 and 19 is another place where we see this worship of God. That God says, I want my glory to be seen by others. Also, you can jot down Jonah. Jonah, just the book you see God saving intentions, extending through Jonah into Nineveh. And then, look with me real quick. Um, jump into the New Testament at Mark chapter 14. We see Christ in the midst of his ministry just prior to his crucifixion. What was it that he saw ahead? What was it that, he, that his mission was about? I'm going to read just the last verse of this section, 14.9. This is following the place where Mary, this, this woman, breaks this jar of expensive ointment and anoints Jesus. And he informs them, saying, this is, this is uh, anointing for my burial. It says, and people are kind of you know, ridiculing her because what she has done and wasted all this money. And this is what Jesus says in verse 9. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world... What she has done will be told everywhere in, in, in memory of her. And you see here, you know, Jesus is still a pretty small, they're in a pretty small band of men prior to his crucifixion. He says, everywhere the gospel goes throughout the entire world, the story will be told. And you've got to wonder if you're sitting there, the whole world, the gospel is going to go. But in Jesus' mind was that this gospel would go to the entire world. And we see that God's heart and mission is for every tribe and tongue and people and nation it's universal it's not just exclusively for certain kinds of people that look certain kinds of way it's for everyone that's why we have missions that's what missions is partly about missionaries what do missionaries do they go to places with the express purpose of taking the gospel to places where it is not if you look at the board and down the hallway, you see the different missionaries that we support. You see that those people are there not by accident, but they're there on purpose. That's why the, the Quidans are in Croatia and the Ketros are in Italy and the Kuliks in Asia. Marcus Brooks travels around the world and why on and on. I go. Leanne Dole just moved to New York City. That's why Campus Crusade and NAVS and Ichthus is here at campus at KU. It's for the express purpose of taking the gospel into classrooms and dorm rooms, fraternities and sororities, that the gospel is not. And that's what missionaries do. In the process of exercising, in the process of taking the gospel, missionaries are displaying for us their commitment that God's gospel is universal and it's for everyone. And to the degree, and as we are involved in praying for them, as we are involved in supporting them financially, we at the same time show and demonstrate this gospel is not just for us. It is for everyone around us. However, the idea that it's universal isn't just extended through missionaries who full-time do this. It's for everyone who, ident who would identify with Christ. We don't have to go across the world to go to the ends of the earth. Right next door, in our offices, in our clubs, the checkout counter on and on and on, wherever our lives might take us, as we go with the mindset that we are his witnesses, as we go with the mindset that the gospel isn't just to be kept, but it's to infect, it's to impact people around us. We are acting in that way as missionaries. 
And we are engaging in missions and demonstrating that this is for everyone, not just a certain group of people. And Revelation demonstrates, or again, paints this picture for us of people standing around the throne, standing around the throne, however they're, they're there, of every t- tribe, tongue, people, and nation, worshiping God. God's heart is for everyone, for every nation that the gospel would go for- forth. As well, there's an urgency we see in the sending forth to say, go and you will be my witnesses. There are thirsty people. There are thirsty people in whom God is at work even now. That he calls us. And as we have opportunities, there's an urgency in us in speaking and living lives that honor him and speaking words about Christ. And finally, this mission that's on his heart, it's, there's a sovereignty that superintends all of it. It's urgent, but we don't have to worry about what's going to happen because it's his. We don't have to worry that this thing's going to work itself out or is the church going to fail? It's not because it's his mission ultimately and we get to be a part of it. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one that will see it to the end. Leslie Newbigin writes in, his, in a book called Gospel in a Plural Society and in his logic of mission, he writes this. He says, there is no room either for anxiety about our, our failure or for boasting about our success. There is room only for faithful witness to the one in whom the whole purpose of God for history has been revealed and affected, the crucified, risen, and reigning Christ. There's no room for anxiety about failure or boasting in success. There's room for faithful witness because it's his mission and we get to be a part of it. And A.W. Tozer warns, we commonly represent God as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father, hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. Too many missionary appeals are based upon the fancied frustration of Almighty God. He's not frustrated. This is a plan, it's a mission, it's on his heart, and he will carry it out. So we see, as we look at the passage back in Acts, we see that the command there tells us something about the church. We see that as they went, they understood themselves to be witnesses. We also see that it tells us even more about the heart of God. When he gives a plan or program, his heart is for the nations and his, his glory would be seen in the proclamation of his gospel. But the question we need to ask is, what about us? The, you know, the words were to them. However, it wasn't the witnesses are not just those who were there seeing him. We, as we read the scripture today, it's the same to us, that we are to be his witnesses. The natural or the supernatural outcome of the spirit indwelling his people is that we will be witnesses that we will talk about him. Now, the issue, I think, for us, and the question that needs to be asked is, how is it that our witness can grow and be enhanced? How is it that, or what does it look like that this power of the Spirit, as it works itself out in our lives, what will it do? Because our witness can be great to a greater or lesser degree accurate, depending on where we are in our lives and what is, what is happening. But the promise is that we will be So what does the power look like evidenced in our lives? What happens? And there's a couple things I want to mention. First of all, as you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that both their words and their actions were influenced and impacted by the power of the Spirit. That there was their words, what they said, and how they lived, and what they did, and how they died, demonstrated the power of God's Spirit at work in their lives. You see... The world doesn't care so much about what we say 
as much as what we do and how we will live. And as a person told me in between the service, this word, basically, your, your actions are speaking so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. And you realize that the problem or the issue with the church is that people look in our lives and they see something that's missing and they hear words, but they don't see a lifestyle that's consistent with those. And our words will have power insofar as they're consistent with the way we act and the way that we live that out. And so both our words and our actions, as, they're, as they come together and we live lives of integrity, not perfection, doesn't call for perfection, but humility and honesty and striving towards godliness. Our witness will be enhanced when there's consistency, but it will be diminished as there's inconsistency in the words of our actions. And God's spirit, as he empowers us, will do both. Also, there's duration as well as fervency. That our, we will have a, a lifetime that he will enable us to walk for a lifetime and not just be passionate. And I don't know about you, but my experience has, has shown me that the person who speaks the loud, loudest or the most boldly or passionately for Christ isn't necessarily the one who is the best witness, isn't necessarily, necessarily the one who's going to last the longest. But, but by God's power, both will take place. It's evidenced in both our, in our lives in our duration, as well as our, our fervency, as well as our passion and our zeal for Christ. So God's power is evidenced in these ways. And finally, it's evidenced and our witness is enhanced, if you will, as we are a people that remembers and celebrates our Lord. How good is a witness that can't remember anything? How good is a witness that doesn't remember exactly what they're telling or the story they're telling? He's not much good. And for us, as life gets full and there's so much going on, we forget what it is and who it is we're witnessing to. And if you've been a Christian for very long, it's easy to forget what Christ has saved us from and saved us to. And it's easy to move forward as if it's just a a yawn and a ho-hum. But as we remember and we celebrate what Christ has done for us, we become witnesses that remember this is who he is. And he is able to use us. There's an, an, our witness is enhanced. Our love and our passion for him is cultivated. That's why we meet. That's why we come together on Sundays to worship him. And at the same time, we remember, oh, this is what he is. This is who God is. This is what he's done in my life. And it's important to celebrate and to remember together. Philemon 6, Paul writes, I pray that you would be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. In the process of sharing your faith, there's a remembering going on of who Christ is as we talk about him. That's what Christ calls us to. And as the Spirit fills us, our words and our actions, duration as well as our fervency, and there's a remembering and a celebrating that goes on. This passage in Acts, we see the heart of God. We see the heart and the mind of the early church. And we see the challenge for us to live in it and under it as we're filled with the Spirit, that he will use us. To conclude, the, the, the word um, witness in Greek is an interesting word. It's martyr. It's translated martyr. And we know what a martyr is. We know that a martyr is one who pays for their witness with their own life. Who pays with, for the things that they have said to be true with their own blood. And certainly as we look at the apostles and we look at their lives and we see that many of them did. The things that they said to be true... They lived out and they paid for it with their own lives. Now, and that's very true of many 
places around the world. If a person says they believe in Christ, there's a very good chance that their life will be taken and they will undergo great suffering. We probably, unless something changes drastically, will not experience that exact situation, although it's hard to say. But we will someday die. And the question is, how is it that we will live? Will we be the witnesses speaking about Christ from this point to that? Will we be those who talk about him, who remember who he is, remember what he's done for us? And I don't know about you, but as I look at my own life, it frightens me. Because I look at what I'm made of and I see my waywardness. I see that I am much too prone to be concerned about myself, my own self-interests. And I wonder, how will this happen that I could ever speak for Christ for the rest of my days? And then I remember, and we need to remember as we look at the passage, that the same spirit that Christ promised would fill them, fills us. The same spirit that empowered Peter, who just a few weeks earlier had denied Christ three times, stands up in the very next chapter and preaches boldly about the gospel, not concerning himself with what might happen. That's the same spirit that dwells in us and will empower us. And God has promised. And as I remember, and his, and his spirit empowers me, my words and my action will be consistency, duration, sense of fervency. I will remember. And as I remember what he has done for me, I remember the needs of others. And the statement that Coca-Cola, the chairman made earlier, isn't completely Untrue. There's some truth in it when he says that people wake up thirsty. And that is true. People are every day waking up thirsty for something that lasts. And as we have tasted what God has done in us, as he has satisfied us with his living water, the gospel, he has at the same time promised that he will take us and he will use us as his vessels to take the gospel to satisfy people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation for his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, confess how often I don't look to you for strength, how often I, my words and my actions are inconsistent, and how often my heart is cold towards the things of you and I forget. And yet I look to you and I pray for myself and I pray for each of us that we would be your witnesses. Somehow, some way, that you would do that, that we would submit ourselves to your strength and your power and trust ourselves to you, that we would remember all that you've done for us. Father, there's so much else that goes on in our lives that fills it up, but help us to be identified first and foremost by you. Thanks for the promise. Thanks for the picture that is being unfolded for us through Acts and and even today as we live. We watch your gospel go forth. And so we pray you do that in and through our lives individually, corporately, through the ministry of this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.